This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm grateful to have this time with you today. Thank you very much for chiseling some time to your Labor Day weekend to be here gathered with the church. Today we're beginning our new series, our 13 weeks, uh, looking for Christ in the Old Testament, discovering Christ in the Old Testament. We've entitled this In the Shadows. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, there should be a Bible close by if you don't have one, um, maybe in front of you there in the seat uh, underneath the seat there. If you don't have a Bible and you locate that one near you, make sure it's not the guys beside you. Write your name in it and keep it. Um, you can have it. Spend some time with it. So as we, as we begin our time, we need to start with perspectives in reading and understanding the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is written with a trajectory in mind. It's written with one big story. So all the pages, Old Testament and New Testament, all fall in line in this one big story, this one central theme, this one grand narrative. And it flows like this in four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Creation, all things beautiful, all things working together rightly, perfect, perfect, perfect. Then sin enters the picture. Adam and Eve, our first parents acting for us, as us, chose to do their own thing in their own way as opposed to doing God's thing in his way. Sin comes in, brokenness, injustice, and so forth. That's the fall. But then Jesus comes to make things right. That's redemption. And he makes all things new now and on into and throughout eternity. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. So you see, the Bible is really one seamless book, and it's all written about God's plan to redeem and rescue his children and make all things broken, right, and whole again. This means that in the Old Testament that we get glimpses and pictures and types and tastes and shadows, if you will, of the Redeemer who will make all things perfectly right and restored and reconciled once again. You see, the Old Testament is about Jesus the Christ. And so as we begin, we need to understand that there's, there's many ways of viewing the Bible, but there's two main ways that we view and read the Bible. First, and this might be how many in this room view the Bible, as it's the roadmap for my life. And I believe that the heart behind this is often very genuine and sincere, but what this means, or at least what this implies, is that the Bible is mainly about you. It's like the Bible is where you look when you don't know where to go, when you don't know what to do, when you don't know how to handle a situation. You go to the road map and you find where you are and you find your way out. But we have to be careful here because primarily the reason is because ultimately the Bible isn't about you. Ultimately, the Bible is not about me. Ultimately, the Bible is about how God, through his son, Jesus Christ, reconciles all things to himself. He reconciles and restores things back into relationship with their creator, God, with our creator, Father. 
And so reading the, the Bible as your personal roadmap, I believe, sets you up for heartache and for disappointment and a lot of despair. For instance, when you, when you read the Bible this way, we tend to make ourselves the, the hero in each story because we don't typically try to pride ourselves in being the villain or, or, or the broken. We want to see ourselves as Abel, who's bringing a proper sacrifice. Cain is the bad guy. We're Abel. Uh, we're like Noah, who hears from God and who works to find favor in God's eyes and obey him. And we're going to be the obedient ones who are in the ark, not those left on the outside of the ark. Or we're like Daniel, who's ridiculed for his obedience and tossed into persecution in the lion's den. But man, we're there and we're trusting, we're trusting just like Daniel. We're even, there's a curriculum called Dare to Be a Daniel. All right, we pride ourselves on trying to be just like these biblical heroes. But this is not the central purpose of these historical accounts that have been carefully passed down to us, the church. Also, reading it this way leaves confusion because we do what they did, but then we fail. And then we beat ourselves up for not doing it the right way. Maybe we messed up somewhere. Maybe we didn't try hard enough. And I thought I, I ate just like Daniel ate. I thought I prayed three times a day just like Daniel prayed three times a day. We, we begin to read ourselves into that story, and we tend to think, we tend to pray, God, make me more like Daniel and Abel and Noah and David, and we're missing the point. The stories in the Bible aren't for us to find heroes to imitate. The Bible stories that we have are to foreshadow the true and better hero who lived and acted for us. Of course, I'm speaking of Jesus Christ. And this is the other way of viewing and reading the Bible. And this is the way that we're going to handle it at Axis. And, and through our 13 weeks, you're, you'll be instructed and you'll be taught, taught and trained in how to read the Bible this way together. Looking, looking back through some perhaps very familiar Bible stories that you may have learned on I don't know, PowerPoint, or if you're old enough, you learned them on flannel graph. If you're older than that, maybe, I don't know what y'all did, drawing in dirt or, I don't know, <laughs> chalkboard. Uh, <laughs> not dirt. Uh, so the, the, our purpose is not just to train you and equip you in, in understanding necessarily in how to view the Bible this way, though that is what we want to do. Ultimately, we want to see our affections for Christ raised to the highest point possible. And from my personal experience and from the experience that I've heard from many of, of, our, of who we are as the Axis, when people find Christ in the Old Testament, it does something in their heart. It's like, aha, and it's like, man, that, that, that changes things. That changes me. It changes how I look at the Bible. And so not only does this encourage our hearts when we find Christ in the Old Testament, but it's actually recorded in the New Testament about how the disciples' hearts were changed whenever they learned that the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. And it's in Luke chapter 24. Oh, so this is after the resurrection. Jesus, this is after his resurrection, but he hasn't been revealed to his disciples yet. So he's, he's dead. And he, these disciples are, in their mind, he's dead. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're discussing the death of Jesus. You can read it in Luke 24. They're discussing, man, they're talking back and forth. They're like, man, we really thought that Jesus was the Messiah. 
but he's dead. So like, what do we do now? And Jesus walks up and starts talking to him and ask him what they're discussing. And, and <laughs> what they ask him is they say, are you the only one in all of Israel that don't know what just happened? Like, don't you realize that, that the Messiah, Jesus died? Are you the only guy left out here? That's really what they said to Jesus. It's in Luke 24. But then Jesus begins to teach them. In verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament scrolls that we have, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Talking about Jesus was unfolding himself in the Old Testament stories. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us when he talk to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. That burning is what I want us to, to see happen here in our time as we study this scripture. And then in verse 44, it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses. So there's stuff written about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, these things must be fulfilled. And this is what I want to have happen this morning. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So now with all of this setting our perspectives and sort of the, the ground rules for how we're going to handle these 13 weeks, let's jump in together. So the first of these 13 stories in the Old Testament that we're going to consider is David in his standoff against Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So in 1 Samuel 17, you've got two armies, they're facing off, and there's a valley in between them. And so what you would do is you would send one champion, one soldier into the valley to represent your army, and the other army, the opposing army, would do the same thing. It was representative fighting. So whoever won this, so goes the army. So if, if the, his army loses, then this army wins and conquers and, and owns all of their uh, takes over their city, owns all of their military, and so forth. They become their people. So, verse 3 of 1 Samuel 17, they're in this valley, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a, a winning warrior, okay? It's not necessarily a, someone who hasn't been defeated, Though it is certainly what that means here, but it's not, it means more than that. The original word champion means representative or intercessor. It's interesting. So a Philistine, a representative, an intercessor named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span, somewhere between eight and a half feet and nine and a half feet. Pretty big guy. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Now, a coat of mail is layer upon layer of metal uh, and animal skin, right? And so it's, it's a layering effect of armor. And the weight of the coat, the armor, was 5,000 shekels of bronze, more than 100 pounds, upwards of 125 pounds. Crossfit vest that. That's a lot of weight. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, 15 pounds, the end of his spear. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Speaking of their king. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, we'll be your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, you will be our servants and you will serve us. It's interesting that Goliath had nothing to lose, essentially. I mean, he would never have to serve them no matter what. He wouldn't have to be humiliated beyond that one moment of defeat. And the Philistines said, I curse. David said, I mean, uh, Goliath says, I curse. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul, the king, who would have been the logical soldier to put forth, because he was taller than anyone else in Israel, of of the Israelites. And in this type of setting, you would send forth your king in these moments when kings go to war in this way. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. They were filled with terror. They were disheartened. They were broken. They were all, it was already over. It was already over. And they were greatly afraid. Now, David was a son of, uh, of an Ephrathi in Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. And in those, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of these three sons who went with him was Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him was Abinadab, and then Shema. David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David would go back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He was still a faithful shepherd. That was his role. It was his job. And for 40 days, one of, one of, this is the most, uh, one of the most oppressive verses um, that I find in the Bible. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Terror, judgment, culminating fear, culminating anxiety. 80 times, morning and evening, 40 days. He would come and declare his dominion over the promised land of God's people, the property that belonged to Israel. He's taking it over. And on their very ground, he is shaming them. He's heaping guilt. There's growing despair. He's speaking their hopeless state that they're in. They need a savior. They need a a deliverer. They need a true champion to rise up against this man who's taunting the children of God. But who and how? Verse 17, And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers this this parched grain and the ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Take the cheeses to the the commander of the thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token, like bring some proof that they're still alive. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left with the sheep with left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went and Jesse as Jesse had commanded him and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army and David left the things in charge of the keeper the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers and he talked with him as he was talking with him behold the champion the representative The intercessor, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines 
from the front lines there and spoke the same words as before, defying the God of Israel. Except this time it's different. This time David heard Goliath. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. It's a hopeless situation for them. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man. Talking about what happens if someone can defeat this man. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said of the men who stood by him, what shall be done for, for the man who kills this Philistine? Like, tell me again. That takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? And this is an incredible insult. It doesn't mean really much to us today. This meant something then. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So he's like, so what will happen? And they told him what would happen. Now, Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when, when he spoke to the men, he overheard David, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He says, why have you even come down here? And with whom have you left your few sheep out there just frolicking in the fields? Like, don't you have something better to do, like go tend sheep? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart. You've just come down to watch. Spectator, go back home. And David said, what have I done now? I just ask a question. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words of, that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, fight with him, for you're but a youth and he's been a, a warrior, a man of war from his youth. And he's grown. He's a grown man. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and punched him in the face and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Something has to happen. And David said, the Lord, understanding the source of his strength, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul the king said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed him with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go, uh, in vain to go, for he had not tested them. He hasn't trained with them. And so he says to Paul, I can't go with these. I haven't trained with all this armor and with this sword. So David put them off, and he just went with what he had. He took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook. He put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. This echoes of Zechariah chapter 4, where we hear the words of the prophet, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I find it interesting that David didn't need armor because he wasn't needing defense. 
He was on the offense. He just needed his weapon. The Lord will do this. The Lord will do that. His hope was in the Lord. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David, he disdained him. He despised him for he was a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance, still baby faced. And the Philistine said to David, wait a minute, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, with a shepherd's staff? And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Come on. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. And those things are not enough. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, by the way. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the, the, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword nor with spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, so opposite of the behavior of his brothers and the other Israelites. And David, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. That's typically what happens when light hits darkness. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines and they plundered their camp. That's the story, the biblical story of David and Goliath. Now, there's some traditional views of this biblical story. Here's some sermon titles, some of which I've preached back years ago uh, before I understood the gospel, before I understood uh, understanding the Old Testament as being about Jesus. For instance, how to kill the giant of fear or what to do when the armor doesn't fit. Or five smooth stones, how to lead with what you have. Or conquering your giants. Be like David and facing my foes. You see, in all of these, we picture ourselves as David. And this is not reading the Old Testament as a part of the grand story of redemption. This is reducing the beautiful scriptures of God's glorious gospel to mere moralism and legalism. Making the Bible simply a book of rules to live by. Do this, don't do this. In other words, are you scared? Are you afraid? Are you anxious? Are you facing the giant of failure? Well, then be courageous. Just be courageous. You see, reading the Bible is primarily about you. You take a place of viewing whatever it is that you're struggling with as Goliath. There's the Goliath of debt. 
there's the Goliath of fear, of, of body image, of a, of a difficult marriage, a struggle. And so you just think, you read this story and you think, well, I'm, I'm clearly David and this struggle is clearly Goliath and I need to go get my strategy, my five stones, my five, my five points of strategy here and I need just to be brave and, and courageous and go face this fool and dominate this man. Well, the problem is, and if you've tried that, you know this to be true. What if you fail? What if you miss Goliath? with your stones? Or what if you do everything right? What if you hit Goliath five out of five times and he's still raging at you? What do you do? Where do you go? When that happens, you tend to take your focus off of the struggle there and you make it a more of an inward struggle where you begin to crush yourself. You begin to defeat yourself. You have failed. You must have done something wrong you go to a place of despair, of disappointment. Man, you gave it your all. You tried so hard, and yet it still remains there. And so then comes guilt. Then comes shame, remorse, anxiety, frustration, doubt. Or a place that we drift to is, well, the Bible must be bogus. God must not care about me. Because I tried everything just like David did and it didn't work. So the Bible's broken, God's broken, and I'm still broken. We tried everything. You see the danger there. Well, my friends, we can't isolate this story from the flow and trajectory of redemptive history. David is not a hero whose courage we should imitate in fighting our individual Goliaths. Rather, let's view it through the whole of redemptive history. If I'm David... God will bless me. That's the opposite of the story. That's reading it incorrectly. This is mainly a picture of Jesus against sin and death. And we are Israel off in the corner. We're afraid to fight, not knowing what to do. And our best effort is making fun of those who are trying something. And then Jesus comes in, destroys our enemy of sin and death and rescues us to be with him, reconciles us to the father for to be with him in paradise forever. And now our hearts are free to worship Jesus and celebrate the salvation that he has radically earned for us. Now it's not on us to overcome the giant. We have a champion, a true and better champion who's able to overcome the giant for us. The Lord defeats the enemy of his people for them. The curse in Genesis 3 that is on us because of our first parents' sin in the garden is reversed. So God doesn't send us an example, sending cowards an example. He sends the cowards a brave savior. And the enemy says, give me a man. Just like Goliath is saying, give me a man to fight, but we're incapable of producing a man strong enough and brave enough. As this is represented fighting, he wasn't just fighting for himself. He was fighting for his people. If he wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. His victory is imputed or credited to his people, credited to the cowards. So here's the point of David and Goliath. David is, as the Lord's anointed, is a type of Jesus Christ. He's a, he's a Messiah figure. He's a shadow of the Messiah. 
who meets and conquers Satan, the strong man, so that he may deliver those who are in Satan's captivity, bound by the power of sin and shame and fear and death. The gospel says, we're not David, Jesus is. We're the scared brothers, and he lives for us. He fights for us. He takes our place on the battlefield so that we do not have to fight. So in thinking this way, consider these similarities and comparisons with David and the greater David, Jesus, the Christ. As, as David's victory over Goliath is a picture in advance of the victory that Jesus has won for us, if we would just believe Jesus. You see, David was despised and rejected by those he was trying to save. Jesus himself was despised and rejected, even crucified by those he was trying to save. David represented his people. Jesus represented his people. David was sent to the battleground by his father, Jesse. Jesus was sent to the battleground by God, his father. David goes vulnerably into the valley to fight for his people. Jesus goes vulnerably into the ultimate valley of death to fight for his people. David crushed the head of the enemy, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent as promised in Genesis chapter 3. David removed the condemning enemy and reproach that stood against the children of Israel. Jesus removed the condemning enemy of sin, of God's wrath, of, of death. The reproach stands against God's children. David killed his enemy with his, its own weapon, the, the sword of Goliath. Well, Jesus killed our enemy with its own weapon as Jesus killed death with death. Saul says to David, go and God be with you. Jesus tells us, go, I am with you. David would receive a, a princess and, and money for his victory. Jesus receives the bride of Christ, the church, and gives us the glorious inheritance of heaven and paradise for his ultimate victory. So as we wrap things up today, I encourage you first to, to read your Bible. Start at the beginning and read it all the way through. And I encourage you to read the Bible all the way through meticulously and repetitively for the rest of your life. It is at the heart of, of, of what Christians value is these pages that are special, that are sacred, that are inspired. All throughout church history, so precious in the view of the Christian are the pages of the Bible cherish the Bible, spend time in it so that you can begin to see the Christocentric thread that goes throughout its pages so that you'll be able to recognize the shadows, the types, the pictures, the echoes of the Messiah in the Old Testament. You know, we all desperately want to be a David who slays our giant. The, the idea of a hero is found in so many of our movies in Hollywood because it hits something deep within us. We want a hero experience. We love it when, when, when the villain is crushed. And we all too often aspire to be the grand hero. And so as much as I can with this grand narrative idea, the big, big idea of, of all of our existence, eternity past, eternity future, all these things in view, I ask you to stop trying to be courageous and brave. Stop working hard to defeat your Goliath. We're all cowards. The gospel says that we're all hopeless, that we're incapable. We're cowards. 
And that's a place where that's okay. The gospel allows it to be okay in being a coward, in not being good enough. We have to start there or we'll never celebrate the victory of the true hero. You see, Jesus is the brave one. He's the one who saves us needy. The ones who, who come to him like little children, needy and helpless. And he intervenes for us. Now this morning to those who are lost, you do not believe Jesus. You must know that sin is unbeatable. And that, my friends, is the giant. And our sin goes to the core. We can't help but sin. We can't help it. And the reproach of God is upon us. My friends, you can't rid yourself of it. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how much good you try to do, you can't get rid of your sin. But Jesus, the warrior, he came to handle this for you. Sin is massive and scary and intimidating, and we've tried attacking it, controlling it, running from it. My friends, there's already been a major standoff against sin, and it's no longer your battle to win, much less to fight. You are to trust in Jesus, the one who defeated sin, and you inherit his victory. Believe Jesus and become a Christian today. Believe Jesus and be saved today. Give up trying and see that Jesus did more than try. He did, and he did for you in your place. Just believe him. Now, to those who are Christians in the room, that you believe Jesus, I ask that you believe the same thing, that you continue to fight to believe this good news, that you be reminded of the good news today, that you, you're not the hero, and that you're not supposed to be the hero. Jesus is the hero, and that is good news for us. It's amazing how quickly we forget that Jesus took care of this for us. We step into the gospel story when we become Christians, and then we live as if the gospel is nowhere to be found. It's like, yes, we're a Christian. Now we have to work in our power and work in our might and try harder. Operate the Christian life, not just through the gospel at your salvation, but let the gospel empower and infuse and motivate your sanctification where you're becoming more like Jesus. Take the gospel with you. Don't leave it at your confession. Don't leave it at the moment of your salvation. See that it is a power for you to continue to be saved. It is not just the power to save. It's the power to continue to save. Don't forget that the victory is won. Don't drift towards fear and experience shame because of whatever Goliath is. Be reminded this morning by Jesus on the cross when he said to tell us die. When he said, it is finished. It has been accomplished. It's over. It's done. It can't be more settled than what it is right now. Continue fighting to believe that this is true is now upon us. Continue to look in the page of scripture. Be reminded, this is true. Jesus said it's finished. And not only that, but we have the same spirit that was in Jesus. The same spirit that was upon David is now within us, Christians. Rejoice in this. That same spirit that sent Jesus, that sent David, the same spirit's in us, sending us as we scatter this week all over Middle Tennessee. It's empowering us as we live our lives of mission, both across the street and around the world. The same spirit is in us to go tell this good news. 
to our hearts and go tell this good news to those around us. Ask God for the needed faith and understanding to have this news move from mere theological theory to practical heart and soul encouragement. We do this together each week, intentionally remembering what Jesus has done, moving it from just a biblical theory, theological theory, to actually where it changes and shapes our hearts. We do this by remembering what he's done for us in his life and death, and we do this through communion together. So during this time, I, I ask that you consider what you've heard and maybe read through some of your notes that you've journaled or, or maybe you read back through some of the texts or anything that you made note of or that you might have just remembered that I said audibly. Think through these things. Don't just move on to what's next. Stay here. Process this. Try to discover places where you're just trying to be the David, trying to be the brave one, and you're failing, and you're failing, and you're getting guilt and shame. Find these places. And see how Christ has performed perfectly for you and allow that to empower you in living the Christian life where it doesn't all rely on your shoulders. And remember what Christ has done as you come and take the bread and dip it in the juice and the wine. Remember his perfect life that's symbolic of the bread. And, and remember his saving work on the cross, which is symbolic by the, the juice and the wine. And you take that and you remember that he did this, that it is finished. Ask him to give you faith to believe that it really is finished. Both Christians and non-Christians, ask him for faith to believe that it's finished. And so come and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word to your people. God, I ask that, that you will, Lord, allow us to, to worship you in this moment, Lord, as we respond to the gospel that we've heard. Lord, would you minister to us, Christians and non-Christians. Lord, work in our hearts. Lord, as, as we do so often try to find ourselves in the stories of being the hero, being the good guy, Lord, would we, would we stop, one, stop doing that? And Lord, would we rely on your effort and your work for us today and tomorrow and the days moving forward that you have accomplished all that's need to be accomplished and allow us live from that? Lord, not trying to work for you to respond. Lord, help us not try to live a good life and an effort to, Lord, draw you out to the battlefield to, to help us. Lord, draw you out to get, get your attention because we're being good, Lord, help us realize that it's not on us to impress you. It's not on us to call you to the battlefield. Lord, let us live our life because you have already come to the battlefield. You've already worked to make us impressive. And you did this through your son. Help us remember this. Help us create a, a culture of grace and mercy and thankfulness in our hearts that stands in stark contrast to that of the world this week. Lord, help us remember you and your magnificent work on the battlefield there on the cross as we take communion as a church family this morning. God, add your special blessing to this time as part of your church here remembers your work through the sacrament that you gave us at the Lord's table. Thank you for this, this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.